from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi, everyone, and welcome again to Still Growing. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. It's so great to be here with you. It is about 40 degrees outside. Yesterday, we had our first 50-degree day here in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and we haven't had that uh, since the middle of November, so it was so great to get outside. Uh, I picked the kids up from school, and we went straight to Dairy Queen, so we were really celebrating the return of some warm weather and the forecast looks so mild this week. I know we'll maybe have a chance to hit another 50 degree day here within the next week or so. So it's starting to change. It's starting to warm up, which is a great, great thing for so many of us. It's been such a brutal winter. The garden has been under snow cover for over 100 days. Like me, I'm sure many of you are anxious to see what has survived, what has managed to survive this insane winter that we've had. So it'll be good to get back into it and watch and wait and see what's coming up, what made it, and then make some choices about how we want to organize, redesign, and shape our garden space. But in the meantime, we can be finalizing our plans for our 2014 gardens. You know, the Garden Media Group recently came out with their 2014 Garden Trends Report, and it had so many fascinating tidbits of information. One of the pieces that I really keyed in on is that this year is referred to as one of the years of happiness, that people are really focusing on the pursuit of happiness. I think about Gretchen Rubin and all of her reporting and books on happiness. Um, and then, of course, the the fabulous song from Despicable Me Too, Happy, that's been so popular. I, mean, I know my husband loves it. It's been kind of our family theme song for the last couple of months. But when you think about happiness in terms of the garden, it really boils down to finding your bliss in the garden and taking your garden and turning it into something that really brings you joy and not something that is strictly you know, a labor of love or, you know, high intensity workout, but something where you can go and really unplug and uh, add some spirituality into your garden and finding ways to make your garden more life giving to you if it's not, if it hasn't been that in the past. So one of the things that I think about for um, happiness is having a fruitful garden. And of course, that's a perfect segue into the topic of my show today, which is, of course, part three of my interview with Joel Karsten, the author of Straw Bale Gardening. But first, I want to give just a quick shout out to a listener named Michael Franklin, who I know in particular has been waiting for the show to come out. Michael reached out to me on the show notes for the last episode, which is a great reminder to everyone else who's listening that don't forget that you can review all of the information that we cover in the show today or on any of the previous shows in the show notes, which are located on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you'll find the Still Growing Podcast in the top menu. Now, once you're there, you can do two things. First, you can scroll 
through all of the old episodes of Still Growing, listen to content, read the show notes, find links to all of the things that have been referenced in the show. And the other new thing that you can do is you can subscribe to Six Foot Mama by entering your email uh, where it says subscribe on the left-hand side. And at that point, you'll get a Cliff Notes version, all of the highlights, the best tips, quotes, and advice from the experts that are on the show. And that will come directly to your email box. And then if it's something that you're interested in, you can click on it to gain access to the links or link back to sixfootmama.com for the full unabridged show notes. Or you can just simply delete it, whatever works for you. It's a great way to keep track of content that you're listening to on the podcast. I know for myself, I mostly listen to podcasts when I'm in the car or I'm outside or I'm at the gym. And sometimes I forget to double back and get show notes. So I think it'll be really handy for listeners. Okay, so let's get into the show. Today, I'm going to wrap up my three-part interview with Joel Karsten, and he's going to focus today on his tips, tricks, and advice for growing vegetables in straw bales. And if straw bale gardening is something you're going to attempt to do this summer, you're going to want to go back and listen to the first two shows because they have fabulous pieces of information about how to straw bale garden from the expert and the pioneer, Joel Karsten. But today, if you're even if you're not a straw bale gardener, but you're a vegetable gardener, I think you'll find some of his insights extremely valuable and useful for you as as you begin your own garden this summer. Before we get to all that, the interview begins with me asking Joel what it's like to straw bale garden in warmer climates. Here we go. Well, obviously, straw bale gardening is great for shorter growing seasons. But I know that you're getting, uh, you know, emails regularly, uh, phone calls, all kinds of communication from people who are total converts. Uh, What are you hearing about uh, straw bale gardening as far as how it's helpful in warmer climates? I'm so curious. Well, you know, when we talk about warmer climates, a lot of times we're talking about you know, Arizona, Nevada, Texas, places like that, where, believe it or not, they don't have the greatest soils there. A lot of their soils are clay-based, they're acidic or alkalinic, uh, and they're too much alkalinity. Um, you know, there can be all kinds of issues with their soil, rocky, sandy, you know, not real conducive and productive soils in many of those parts of the world. Um, and so this is a great alternative, you know, for people who, haven't been able to do traditional gardening in the soil, or if they do garden, they have to build raised beds and they have to bring in, you know, good productive potting mix, which is extraordinarily expensive on a mass scale like that. This is a really great alternative for them to to change to. Um, We have lots of people in Florida, believe it or not, that are big into straw bale gardening. However, down in Florida, it's very difficult to find straw. So they do use hay down there. So, you know, I hope I didn't give people the impression that you can't use hay. You can if if you get desperate, <laughs> desperate measures, right? Um, so if you buy hay bales, particularly hay that's been harvested early enough that the seed heads hadn't had a chance to mature, um, then you won't get lots of sprouts that come out of those hay bales. So you kind of got to know what you're doing when you go to buy hay bales or know the farmer that baled them so you know if there's mature seed heads in there or not. If you buy bales that have mature seed heads and now you start watering and fertilizing a bale of grass hay that has seed heads in it, guess what happens? You're going to grow it. You get a chia pet growing in your garden. It grows hair everywhere. So um, so you got to kind of know what you're buying, and then, but it works the same, very similar. 
Um, so a lot of my people in Florida, that's what they're doing is using bales of hay instead of straw. Um, hay is a lot cheaper down there than straw. They would have to import the straw from out of state, um, out of state where they grow grass everywhere in Florida. I mean, there's, there's meadows of grass everywhere. So hay, grass hay is really cheap. A lot of cattle, a lot of grazing cattle down in Florida as well. Huh. Um, and then other states as well, you know, people in, in Arizona and Nevada, which are truly desert climates, you know, they get plenty of sun. That's never been their issue. We, we talk more with them about using the trellis system that we've built to help support shade cloth during part of the season because many of their gardens will burn up if it doesn't have a nice covering of shade cloth. Mm, and then it's just point. a matter of, of managing their water, you know, making sure that they're getting water on their gardens at least a couple times a day. Um, you know, to maintain that, that moisture level because they do get, you know, 110 degrees literally in the shade wow. uh, for part of the season down there. So, um, but, it, it, you know, people are having great success and, and, you know, and even in different parts of the world. We have uh, a couple of guys in Abu Dhabi um, over in the United Arab Emirates in the desert that are, that are straw bale gardens. That's great. Um, they, feed their, they feed their camels grain and, and grass, and, you know, they have lots of bales, bales of, of fodder and bales of bedding material over there as well. So um, hmm. it's interesting. Some of the materials that people use in other parts of the world aren't necessarily exactly the same as ours, you know, oat straw and wheat straw like we use, but, uh, but it still works. Any tightly baled organic material that will decompose rapidly will work for this process. Wow. Well, for folks who aren't yet convinced, I know that there are so many advantages to this method of gardening. What's the upside for folks who want to try it? What's the elevator pitch? Things, may, things maybe that they didn't expect to enjoy about uh, straw bale well, gardening. It, you know, depending on the group I'm talking to, I'll emphasize uh, one point over another. If I'm talking to a group of seasoned gardeners, maybe people who've been gardening for a long time and are looking at their traditional garden and thinking, you know, maybe I'm getting to the point where I can't do all that work anymore and it's hard to get down on the ground. Well, one of the biggest advantages of straw bale gardening is it's raised up off the ground. You know, it's already 20 inches above soil level, so you don't have to get down on your hands and knees um, to do your planting and your harvesting, et cetera. So just the fact that it's elevated, it's a raised bed garden without the raised bed price yep. is really um, one of the biggest advantages. Um, we, you know, we talked already about um, how it's weed-free. So for I'm talking to a group of brand-new gardeners who've never gardened before. They have no idea what they're in for with the <laughs> traditional garden. You know, you, you start a garden and you've never gardened before and you take your rototiller and you dig up your little 8 by 8 foot by 8 foot patch and you get your rose made and you plant your seeds and then three days later this green carpet starts to grow back in your garden and, you know, they're new. They don't know, well, is that a seed coming up or what is it? So they kind of let everything grow. And by July 4th, it's just a solid mass of weeds and, you know, some plants in there, but very few plants are able to stop. It can be a disaster, and it's disheartening, and it, you know, sort of takes the wind out of their sails in terms of gardening. If they do strawberry gardening, they don't have to worry about that. Hmm. If they can get through the 10-day conditioning process and at least get, you know, follow the directions somewhat closely – and get to the 12th day where they get their plants and they get them in there. And if they can get a soaker hose set up on that straw bale, and then I always encourage, along with the soaker hose, is a little hose end timer. that You put a battery in and you hook it up to your garden hose. So that, that alarm clock for your garden hose, it wakes your hose up in the morning and it tells it, you know, water this garden for 10 minutes and then it shuts off automatically. 
that does it at five o'clock in the morning before you ever even open your eyes in the morning, they're pretty much, they pretty much have a garden. And it's at that point, it's hard to fail. You know, yeah. they'll, stuff will grow whether they go out to the garden or not. Stuff's going to grow and they're not going to get many weeds. So that's a, something they don't have to battle. And all of a sudden they're going to be out picking tomatoes and picking cucumbers and they don't know how in the world they got there, but, um, you know, if they get the first couple weeks in, then, and, and get that garden hose set up, um, so it gets, make sure that garden gets water. It's really all there is to it. And you, I know it sounds weird, but you, you condition, you plant, and you harvest. Yeah. And, you know, and if you've got an automatic water system set up, it, you don't even have to go to your garden with a garden hose. It takes care of that for you. Yep, bada-bing. So that's a really big advantage. So if I'm talking to a group of newbies, that's what I'm going to emphasize is, you know, you don't have to go through this learning curve and you don't have to rotate crops and you don't have to learn, you know, what you can't plant where and, and when, et cetera. Um, you know, that's a, that's a big advantage as well. So, you know, it, the advantage I emphasize tends to vary depending on who I'm, who I'm talking to. But, um, you know, people who've been gardeners for a long time and you start talking about, you know, this, this heating process where the bales get warm and you can plant a little bit earlier. And so that's a big advantage. You know, hmm. you don't have the spring freeze. You don't have the fall uh, frost nipping those plants before they can get fully mature because your plants tend to grow a little bit quicker. Yep. Now you have some fun tips in your book as well. And one, speaking of tomatoes, is how to build a tomato tower that lasts forever and costs just five bucks. How does that work? <laughs> you know, I've been building, I started building these things. I don't do them anymore, but um, I started building them years ago. I built a couple of them and all my neighbors just loved them. People I knew loved them. So I'd build them and I'd bring them to the farmer's market actually and I'd sell them. So it was like another little side business I had. <laughs> and the way they work is you, you can buy this at any of the big um, home centers. Um, Menards is where I go to buy mine. But it's um, concrete reinforcing wire is what it's called. And the stuff comes in, you can either buy it in sheets like four by eight sheets, or you can buy big rolls of it that are either 50 or 100 feet long. And they're all the same. I think they're five feet actually wide. And they have great, it looks just like wire fencing, except it's made to embed in concrete. So the wire's a little bit thicker, and, and the squares are real big in the wire. It's not like little chicken wire or something you can't get your hand through. The squares are great big five-inch by five-inch squares. Um, so I, what I do is I buy a long roll of it and I cut it up in sections and then you just basically spiral it up into a cylinder and I put zip ties to hold it, you know, to hold the spiral together once you've cut it. Um, and on one end, if you cut the wire off, you'll have all the little spokes that stick out the end, sort of the crossbar. Yep. And those work really good to stick down into the soil and you put this right around your tomato. You make a tube that's, you know, if you cut them about five and a half feet or whatever long, when you spiral that up, you can make a two-foot diameter um, cylinder that goes over the tomatoes and goes, you know, five feet, five and a half feet tall, um, and it'll hold even your big tomatoes. Now, when the tomato goes up, you know, you got to reach in there and pull this tomato. If you're picking, you know, beefsteak tomatoes, those suckers can be pretty big, so you can't get your hand in if it's a little wire fence, but this this concrete reinforcing wire lets you stick your whole hand through the squares because they're great big squares, and these things just last forever. I mean, I've got some that I built you know, 18, 20 years ago, and I still use them. So they're rusty, and if you don't, you're out of storage space, you just take the zip ties off in the fall and you smash them down on the ground, and you can walk right over them, and, and you know, snow will fall over top of them, and the next spring you, you put the tube back together and put a new zip, a couple new zip ties on, and you've got your tomato cage ready to go again. I love it. Literally, they last forever. So 
yeah, I, I, I used to build those when I was younger and more ambitious. And basically, I build them for five dollars and sell them for ten dollars at the farmers market. I do you know twenty five or thirty of them on a on a Saturday. And, hmm. uh, and lots of people, I'm sure, still using them all across the Twin Cities. Oh, I'm sure they are. <laughs> hey, I also appreciate your tip for harvesting and freezing basil. You've got to share that. Um, actually, I'm about to do that here pretty quick. My basil <laughs> is really in, in full leaf right now, and I plant lots of basil plants. I bet I have at least 40 or 50 basil uh, plants out there. We just bought all our stuff to make pesto as well. Um, but a great way to store basil is you basically pick the leaves, you know, sort through the plant, pick the, the good, big leaves, throw out any bad ones. Um, I just take handfuls of leaves and roll them up and do a quick chiffonade, you know, just a rough, basic tearing chop with a um, with a big knife and then take a whole fingerful and shove them down into an ice cube tray and then um, what works best is if you fill it up with olive oil um, depending on your recipe you know almost any recipe that you're going to add basil to their olive oil is going to enhance that recipe if it's any kind of an Italian base etc there are some people that will use water um, instead of the olive oil, so it's kind of your option, but olive oil tends to work best. Um, so you push the basil down in the ice cube tray, you fill it up with olive oil, you pop it in the freezer, you freeze that olive oil, and it doesn't get super hard. You know, olive oil doesn't freeze super solid, but you you break the cubes out, and now you just put all the cubes a couple days later, once they're frozen, into a bag and throw them in your in your chest freezer. Now, when you have a recipe that cause, calls for a tablespoon of fresh basil. Instead of spending nine dollars at the grocery store mm-hmm. when it's the middle of February, um, you can grab a couple of cubes out of your freezer and pop them in there, and it really holds and, and keeps that fresh basil flavor um, in those cubes. That <laughs> olive oil just holds it in really nice. So it's a, it's the best way there is to to, to keep good fresh basil. Um, I always say when I go to the grocery store in the winter and you know you literally pay six or seven dollars for one of these little clamshells of two sprigs of basil yeah i come home i i always tell my wife how all summer i'm a millionaire when it comes to basil because i have so much of it and then in the winter i have nothing you know except the frozen stuff so this helps you kind of uh amortize it over the year right over the cold over the cold season one of the things that um, I know people are very curious about, and when you mentioned basil, it made me think of it because I'm always direct sowing basil. Let's talk about direct sowing into the straw bale. Okay. Well, in order to direct seed, particularly like your cool season stuff, your you know your radish and your peas and beans and carrots, you need to create a seed bed on top of the straw bale. Um, now, people's first instinct is to take their shovel and take a couple shovels of soil from their garden and put on top of the bale, and that's a big no-no. We don't do that. What we do is we buy one bag from the garden center of a sterile planting mix. And usually what I suggest is that they buy a soilless planting mix, something that has you know it has peat moss and decomposed wood bark and that kind of stuff in it, but it doesn't have soil. That way you don't have any possibilities of introducing any kind of a uh, pathogen, fungus, anything like that. It's going to be sterile. You, you frost the cake. You put just an inch or an inch and a half of this potting mix on top of the bale and sort of pack it down, make a smooth surface, and then you put your seeds right in that seed bed. Um, if the seed pack tells you on your carrots to plant two inch in the row seed spacing, we plant the carrots two inches apart, but we don't plant in rows. We plant like a checkerboard pattern on top of the bale. So two inches apart, 
but in every direction. So it looks like a, every white square on a checkerboard on top of that bale. Why do you and, like that method? Um, because it tends to give you more population density, which is good. We get more production per square foot. And we're raised up off the ground, so we still get good airflow. And, you know, we've got the espalier wire working for us. So, you know, plants, peas and beans are going to, you're going to get lots of sprouts in a small area, but then they're going to climb up that espalier wire and they're going to stretch out in every different direction. So you get plenty of sunlight still, even though you have a, a dense population um, of seeds. You get it because of the vertical um, aspect of the garden, you're going to get lots of, of foliar surface and lots of photosynthesis as well. Um, so it just allows you to get more density. I mean, you can get 68 or 70 carats on the top of one bale, of, you know, of a typical four-foot-long bale. Um, you know, it's a lot of carrots. It's like having 20 feet worth of carrots, a 20-foot-long row in a typical garden uh, to get that same number of carrots. So, um it gives you more population density, concentrates the, you know, the growth in a little bit smaller area, but you still get the, the same amount of production or better production uh, because of that vertical aspect above your bales where it's, you know, sending the shoots up. You know, if you plant one bale with 28 pole bean seeds in one bale, you're going to get about probably 16 or 18 of those that will actually survive, those seeds that will make it up onto the espalier wire and start growing. And then they're going to grow two bales in one direction and two bales in the other direction up on this espalier wire. And you get a, a mass of vegetation that comes from the roots all in the center bale, but, you know, it goes two bales in each direction up on that espalier wire above the, the other straw bales. Um, so off of one, one single bale, we, we measured two summers ago, we kept real close records on one bale of pole beans. We got 36 quarts of green beans off of one bale. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, I mean, you would need how many feet of row in a typical garden to get that much production? You know, you would need, you know, 40 feet of row to get that kind of production. So, wow, this is going to transform gardening for urban gardeners. That would be wonderful. I'm 100% behind that. That would <laughs> <Yeah>. be great. <laughs> so I saw in the back of your book that you're growing peanuts. Yes. Um, actually, this year, believe it or not, this year my peanuts didn't work out as well, mainly because I think I got them in a little bit late and, uh, but in past years, I've I've grown peanuts every year and had great success. So just you know, just one of those years where it didn't work out so well this year. Huh. Um, but they're in most years they're real easy to grow and and pretty simple. You know, usually peanuts are pretty tough in Minnesota because we have a pretty short growing season and it's yes. hard to get peanuts mature enough that you can actually harvest a a filled pod. You know, the pods will be there, but they're kind of usually they don't get completely developed and you don't get much of a crop. So. Okay. But in a straw bale, you you do because so, you get that. You look. basically get about what three extra weeks of growing season. Yeah, I would say you know, especially with the early season fast growth, um, I would say at least three weeks. Yeah, usually what it does it shortens the days to maturity. You know, like if you look at a tomato plant, it tells you this is a hundred days to maturity. Usually, I tell people to knock off about ten percent, and that's a real safe number. So. That would be 90 days. Well, if you planted it two weeks early and now you only have 90 days to maturity, yep. you're, you're really saving, you know, nine, you're saving 10 days plus another 10 days of planting earlier. Or, so you're getting tomatoes, you know, 23 days earlier than you normally would. Let's talk um, about fertilizing then. So do you need to fertilize once you've conditioned that bale and everything's growing? Or is that is it's all just kind of this, uh, all contained in this environment? You don't even need to continue fertilizing. 
you usually don't need to do a whole lot of, of additional fertilization. But I always tell people your plants will tell you if they need fertilizer. Okay. You know, if you look at a plant and it looks a little chlorotic where the, the in between the veins of the leaves is yeah. a little light green, uh, probably means you're nitrogen deficient. And okay. you need to add, if you're an organic, you're going to add some uh, fish emulsion or kelp meal. And if you're a traditional gardener, you're going to hit it with some miracle Grow or whatever, something with nitrogen, some kind of a soluble fertilizer that will not only absorb through the leaves, but you want to put it on the roots as well. Uh, but your plants will tell you. And in most cases, um, now this summer I have, uh, in my garden, I did I fertilized one time all summer. Um, and I do half organic bales and half traditional. So I used miracle Grow on the, on the traditional half, and I used fish emulsion on the, on the organic half. And I only did one fertilization the whole summer. So most of it, the nutrients come from... The fertilizer we added during the conditioning, but then it also comes, remember, from the decomposed organic material. You know, that decomposed straw um, has lots of micronutrients and, and some of the macronutrients in it as well, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. So. Huh. So let's play a little game. I'll name a vegetable, and you tell us how you would plant it in a straw bale garden. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe harvest it, too, if you think there's something unique about the way you would do it in, okay. a, in a straw right. garden. Okay, potatoes. Potatoes. Oh, this is a good one. This is one I get all the time. Um, planting potatoes, usually with most varieties, you can get three potatoes if you have an average size bale. You know, your 40-inch, 42-inch long bale. You put one in each end and one in the middle, and the way you plant is you condition your bale, and then you take a two-by-two, two, literally a piece of wood, like a two-by-two two and a hammer, and you pound a hole in the bale. because It's hard to get a hole deep enough for these potatoes. So you want to pound it so that your board is almost coming out the bottom of the bale. If you have a 22-inch tall bale, you want that hole 20 inches deep. Okay. You have two inches below the hole. Then you cut your potato cuttings, drop them down those holes that you made in the bale, and walk away. Don't fill them in with anything. Just leave them alone. And the potato will send its little uh, stem up through that hollow tube that you've made in the bale, that hole you made. It'll send its little hollow tube towards the sunlight, and it'll take about two, two and a half, sometimes three weeks before it'll reach the surface, that, that leaf. And then by that time, that soil that's now been created around that stem will sort of collapse around the stem of the potato. And anybody who's grown potatoes knows it's a tuber, it's not a root. So tubers are going to grow off of chips along that long stem. So the longer the stem for potatoes, the more potatoes you're going to get off of that plant. So that's why we plant them so deep. You could never do that in the soil because they would never reach the surface. They couldn't push that much soil above their head. So usually in the soil environment, people will pile uh, soil or something up around the potato stem as it comes out of the ground. We don't have to worry. We just have got a really long stem that comes out of the out of the bale. We train that that vine up on our little spire wire we have above the bale. I know normally you don't tie up potato vines, but it works really good to do this. So you train them up on the wire, and you come back that fall once that vine has withered and maybe a light frost, and you cut the strings on the bale, and you give it a little kick with your foot, and you pick up a bushel of potatoes. There's no fork marks. There's no shovel marks. Mm. Potatoes come out nice and clean. Uh, they taste delicious just as if they're grown in the soil. There's no difference in the taste. Um, it, it really is the easiest way there is to grow potatoes. I tell people once you've done it in straw bales, you'll, you'll never go back to growing it any other way. It's wow. Super easy. That's awesome. Beans. Yeah. Let's talk about beans. Uh, beans, 
pole beans or bush beans, you know, you can grow either one. I like to do pole beans because I get to take advantage then of these wires that we've built above. So um, it's about 28, you know, average size straw, about 28 seeds you're going to end up putting in if you space them properly in the top of the bale. But again, keep in mind, it's survival of the fittest, so the healthiest plants are going to reach that wire first, and eventually they're going to start to shade the plants that didn't grow as quickly. So you'll get about, you know, anywhere from 16 to 18 surviving plants that will end up up on the wires. And look out. I mean, stand back. You're going to start getting production early in the season, and it seems like they never end. Really? Uh, you know, yeah, you get you get a ton of, of green beans off of just planting one bale. Um, like I mentioned earlier, we get we got 36 quarts of green beans off of one bale worth of plants. So it's super productive. If you <laughs> like green beans, it's a great way to it's a great way to plant and harvest. And, and you know, not all your green beans are up on these wires, and you're, they're already started two two feet off the ground. So you can literally stand up when you're picking the green beans. You don't even have to bend over, which is very convenient. Yeah, now you're speaking um, my language. Yeah, you know, that's the problem with green beans. If you miss one. That's nice and mature. You miss it, and you come back two, three days later when you're going to pick again. It can be overgrown by that point. And then they get, you know, they get kind of woody and yeah. not as good. But when they're up off the ground like this, they're much easier to see, and you're much less likely to miss any of those beans during your harvesting process. Yep. So it just makes it more convenient. Love that. Tomatoes. Tomatoes. Again, with the espalier wire. So we plant early. Um with tomatoes typically in the soil, what we're going to do is we're going to, when we, when we start that transplant, we're going to cut off all of the side branches except the last pair of branches or pair of leaves that come out, and we're going to bury that whole stem down in the soil. You can do that in your straw bale, but that means you've got to dig a deep hole. And sometimes, especially if you have a real compressed, tightly compacted bale, you're going to see it's difficult to get a hole deep enough to plant that whole stem of your tomato. So... Dig as deep a hole as you can and plant that tomato as deep as you can. But don't backfill um, when you plant down in that hole and you need a little extra fill material. Don't backfill with soil. Backfill with your sterile planting mix so that you don't introduce any disease or fungal problems or anything to that straw bale. This keeps the tomato free of the virus, either septoria leaf spot or verticillium wilt, the two main diseases that kill majority of people's tomatoes or at least cause defoliation for tomatoes. And the thing that everybody tries to avoid, right, that, that's harbored in their soil from year to year. Um, and then train the tomato vines when they, when they take off and start growing up your wire. Um, I just weave them back and forth so they grow right up in my wire. If you want to do tomato cages, you can use tomato cages, but you need to put a post next to the cage on top of that bale. Because otherwise the tomato cage is going to get really tippy up on top of that bale. The bale itself is not going to be in solid enough to support the weight of that cage, especially when it gets all kinds of tomatoes and stuff growing on it. So, um, so put another post next to the tomato cage if you decide to do tomato cages. In the ground, uh, you the, mean? Yeah, to put the tomato cage, put the post in the ground and put the tomato cage on top of that uh, bale and then wire the post to the tomato cage so it doesn't tip over. Okay, zip tie it, wire it, however, but just somehow yeah. fix it to it, stabilize I'll a little bit. It, yeah. So it okay. doesn't get tippy. That's the main thing. Okay. But the, believe me, the, the post at the end and the wire stretched across, that works great for tomatoes too. I mean, even your big hybrids, they'll go up that wire and they'll start heading down the, the board you have between the posts at the top. And, you know, then they're trying to go over to your neighbor's yard and they're taking off every direction. I just, when those, when those vines get that tall, 
and above my head and out of reach, I just start snipping them off. Huh. And, you know, I keep my tomatoes pruned, any of the little suckers that grow out between the main branch and the, you know, you get those little crotch suckers that grow off of there. I like to prune those off because that's just vegetative growth. They're not going to produce any fruit. And that helps your sort of signals your tomato to fill out the fruit that it already has rather than trying to keep growing vine to get over to your neighbor's garden. Um, you know, just sort of tells it, hey, it's time to finish our tomatoes that we already have set rather than, you know, continuing to build more vine and grow, grow even more. So just kind of a good pruning program is important for tomatoes. And usually you're going to have stuff right before your neighbors. So that's a, that's a nice feeling to have, you know, Roma tomatoes and other tomatoes ripe a, a week or two weeks earlier than your neighbors because then you can take them over and, and brag at your neighbor's house. Yes, but you wait to laugh till you're in the house, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> How about carrots? Um, carrots, same thing, two-inch spacing. You know, use that. Frost the cake, use that layer of potting, uh, planting mix on the surface, and then two-inch spacing like a checkerboard. Um, you know, carrots grow very quickly, so you're harvesting, you know, 45 days probably from when you seed, depending on how big you like to let them get. You know, I like to make my carrots kind of tiny. Uh, you know, if you let them grow to the end of the season, you're going to get some that are kind of woody and and just like in a traditional garden. But if carrots love, and onions, any of your root crops love the straw bale environment because there's lots of air spaces down in that straw bale. So it's real easy for them to grow nice, long, skinny, beautiful, you know, healthy-looking uh, carrots and, and onions and, and whatnot down in there. Yeah. Cabbage. Cabbage, uh, depending on the variety, you can get anywhere from, you know, if they're really the big ones, two cabbage on a top of a bale to four. Um, believe it or not, I have grown cabbage out of the side of the bale. Oh, really? People come over and they look at it and they say, what is that growing out the side? I said, it's a head of cabbage. You mean you grow it sideways? And literally, you plant it right in the side of the bale, and the head of cabbage will stick out the side. It kind of tries to turn upright a little bit, but it will grow right out the side of the bale. I actually <laughs> discovered this because I had a bale that tipped over a couple of years ago. I had some cabbage, and it, the cabbage kept growing and did just fine. So then a couple of years later, um, I start planting it in the side on purpose, and you know, the, one of the things with cabbage is you always get those big leaves on the outside that kind of hold water, fill up with water after rain or if you get any overhead water that hits it. Yeah. And when you get that water down in those bottom leaves, you, that kind of can draw insects and, and worms and other things like that. That doesn't happen when it's planted sideways. When it's growing out the side of the bale, it's kind of tipped sideways and it physically it doesn't allow uh, those leaves to hold that water. So it seems to solve that problem. And it, they develop just very nicely, just like a cabbage growing on the top of the bale. Wow, that's great so insight. Great. I tell you what, that's the best work. practice in cabbage. Yeah. I do the same thing with my zucchini. Those get planted in the side of the bale, even the you know the bush-style zucchini. Um, squash and pumpkins, those go in the side of the bale because they're going to take off and run anyway. You know, I put a big field of wood chips out that, you know, they will cover that whole, you know, seems like a quarter of an acre uh, that they'll go out and cover. Um you know, so all they're doing is using that straw bale as their original root and their sustenance to get the plant up and, and growing, and then they take off and make their own field. So I put them on the outside of the garden, on the outside of a bale, right in the side of the bale. And then the surface of the bale I use for anything that I need to do from seed, because it's hard to plant a seed in the side of the bale. You know, yeah. Pretty much impossible. Right. So um, it also kind of masks the fact that it's a bale then, too, because you're getting so much 
coverage, right, of the bale when right. you grow these things on the side? You know, I show slides sometimes to people of a strawberry garden in full green, you know, about this time of year, August, September, and they'll say, well, are there strawberries in there? And I'm like, yep, right there, there's a row of strawberries. They're just covered up with all the vegetation because every little square foot, wherever you see a straw bale, there's a plant growing out of there. Something gets planted in there. If it's the side of the bale and you don't have anything in there, well, you know, you can fill in that space with a basil or a chives or any of your herbs I love to do in the sides of the bale. Huh. Um, because they're, you know, you're usually going to do those from transplants and, you know, they, they thrive in the environment and they kind of, you can always use more herbs. So um, even grabbing one and dividing it and, and putting, you know, filling in areas of your sides of your straw bales where you don't have anything growing out of there uh, works really well. Wow. Talk about uh, cucumbers. Cucumbers, if you do um, the bush style, you know, you're going to do them right on, on the side or on the top of the bale, and, you know, they just kind of create the mound. If you do the vining style cucumbers, I like to do them in the top of the bale, and then I train all the vines up on that espalier wire. Oh, we're back on the to the ground. wire. Sure, that makes sense. Because now when you go to harvest your cucumbers, they're hanging up in the air. Mm-hmm. So they're real easy to harvest. You don't ever miss any. And again, like the green beans, if you miss a cucumber, you come back two days from now, that cucumber is probably going to be woody and overgrown. Because, you know, they're going to grow four inches every day, for crying out loud. So yeah. um, it makes them easier to harvest. You know, they're up off the ground. They're nice and clean. So you don't have to, they don't get that, you know, dirt splash on them from the soil nearby. Yep. Um, you can literally pull them off, and they're nice and clean, and you can eat eat one while you're harvesting the rest of your stuff in the garden. Huh. Um, so, yeah, cucumbers are, uh, they really love the straw bale environment, and, and they grow very quickly. So. How about lettuces? Lettuces? You know, this year has been such a good year for lettuce. I'm still harvesting some of my spring lettuce, believe it or not, and it hasn't gotten bitter yet. I know that sounds crazy yes. with all the heat you've had, but... but um, and then I'll do, uh, usually about this time of year, I'll reseed, you know, do another seeding. Um, uh, I did a little bit of uh, butter lettuce again here uh, probably 10 days ago or so, so that's coming up nice. Um, you know, you kind of got to reseed as the season goes in a normal year. You know, once you've cut lettuce twice or so, usually it gets bitter and you really can't, it's not really edible anymore. And you just pull it out by the root and get rid of it and, you know, spread it if you need to spread another layer of potting mix and then reseed again over the top. But it's a continuous harvest, just like in a normal garden, usually two or three seedings every year. Okay. So you, if, so if you, if you were done and you were going to uh, sow again, you would just take that more of that sterile soil and put it over the sterile top and basically yep. just like you did before. Yep. If you need to, you know, you, you know, there might be enough left there from the last time when you seeded too. You know, I mean, it doesn't really go anywhere other than, when you water, it tends to wash some of it down into the bale, so it may get a little prickly and uneven on the surface. And you want to, you know, you want to have a nice seed bed so that everything germinates and you get nice coverage and, and and that. So you know, a little layer over the top is helpful. Oh, it only takes a couple of handfuls. You know, a little ice cream bucket size, one gallon container size of a planting mix will easily cover the whole surface of a bale. Huh? How about strawberries? Um, strawberries, I like to plant in the spring. And usually we'll get, I've got strawberries, um, my everbears are blooming right, or uh, are fruiting right now. As a matter of fact, I picked some for lunch today. So um, so you'll get fruits your first season, but it's really a second year bale. If you've left those strawberries over that first year, where you're, you're going to see they really go to town the second year. And they'll have covered that whole bale. It looks like 
again, like we go back to the chia pet. It looks like a chia pet because that whole bale will be covered by your strawberry. It sends runners, and the runners will try to get to the neighboring bale if you don't cut them off. But um, sometimes you grab those runners and just shove them in the sides of the bale, and oh pretty soon gosh. you've got all these strawberry plants coming out of the sides and the top and the ends um, covers that whole bale. It's like a little strawberry sheep. Uh, you know, it's it's fleece all covered in strawberries. So I bet people have well. just about fallen over when they've seen that. Yeah, it's amazing how many you can get out of, you know, one or two bales. And it's hard to keep the strawberries under control because they do. They want a runner and they want to send runners over everywhere. So, um, so they do love the environment. You know, if you, if you just leave your strawberries in your bale forever, eventually that bale will decompose and you'll have a strawberry patch right where you put that original bale. But you're not going to have the raised height anymore, which is, for some people, that's what they're after is that, that raised height. But you, you want to establish a strawberry patch, put them in straw, you know, plant them in straw bales, and then just intend to leave that bale right where it is. And it'll decompose right into the ground, and you'll have a strawberry patch right there. Wow, that's great. Now, uh, garlic and onions. You touched on it a minute, but I'm, I'm so curious how you do it. Onions, you can, you can actually do, believe it or not, in Minnesota, you do onions from seed. Um, and they'll, you know, they'll get a nice-sized little um, scallions uh, just growing from seed um, because we have a nice early season, so you can do them from seed. Or you can start, you know, if you're doing bigger onions from sets, and if you're doing them from sets, you can plant right down in the straw bale. You don't have to put a seed bed. Just shove that bulb right down into the bale. Um, use your traditional spacing, as you normally would. And onions do beautifully. They do really well. They love the straw bale environment. So they do well. Um, and what was the other thing? Onions and... Garlic. 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 I like to take the bale that I have at the end of the year that's in the best condition. You know, it's still holding together and sort of has a, a good shape to it. And then, you know, plant my garlic in the fall, and usually, you know, you get a little bit of um, hopefully root growth, not so much top growth. But And then the next spring, they send up their little um, little green spirals that grow off the top. You can actually cut those and eat them if you want. They're, they're pretty tasty. And then just let them finish in the bale, and then, uh, you know, you're going to harvest the next spring. So you're always going to fall plant garlic, just like normal. Just like normal. So that's where uh, part of it is... Uh, part of straw bale gardening will be very familiar. Some of it, there is a little bit of a learning curve, but once you get going, it's probably, it becomes second nature, basically. Yes, exactly. Now, um, I'm curious, what are your favorite herbs to grow in your straw bale garden? Now I'm, Im- I'm imagining everything growing kind of horizontal out the side, but what are your yeah. like top five herbs that you love to grow? Um, well, I grow, I mean, this is embarrassing to admit because they're so easy, but chives, we get, we eat a lot of chives. Um, I love basil. And as I said, I have so many basil plants because we do pesto. We do uh, tomato basil soup. Roasted tomato basil soup is a big favorite of mine. Hmm. And we just freeze a lot of basil to use in recipes throughout the winter. So um, I do tons of basil. I've got oregano out there. I've got um I, I tend not to grow rosemary. That's one cautionary note I give people. Now, I've seen some people send me pictures, and they've done okay with rosemary in their straw bales. But rosemary, for me, has never thrived like it does in the soil. I mean, it'll persist. It'll grow a little bit, but it doesn't love the environment like it does when I plant it in a kind of take a rocky, clay, alkalinic, uh, sandy area of, of my garden, and that's where I'll put it. In the worst conditions you get it, it seems like the better it does. 
You put it in a nice, lush environment like the straw bale garden where it gets lots of moisture and lots of fertility, and it just seems to not do as well. So mm. I've given up trying to grow rosemary there. I have a couple of uh, rosemaries that I plant in the same spot every year that do really well in the soil. Um, so that's one I don't grow. But, um, you know, I do a whole variety of, of different things. So I did a garden talk this spring, and as I was leaving, somebody handed me a little pot, and I said, well, what is this? And she said, I'm not sure what the name of it is, but it tastes like licorice, and it's really fun to grow. So I brought it home, and I thought, well, I'll pop it in the straw bale and, you know, see what happens. Um, And I still don't know for sure what the herb is, but it does. It tastes like black licorice. Every time I go to the garden, I grab a couple leaves, and, and, you know, things just grow like crazy. It's covered half a bale at this point. Who knows? It's probably going to spread everywhere, but it's probably like mint or something that's going to take over my whole garden. Um, But I do grow a little bit of mint, too, just because we use it in a few, mainly in cocktails, but uh, a few recipes throughout the summer. So I grow a couple of mint as well. Huh. Would you share your uh, tomato basil soup recipe with us? And I'll put it on the website when we uh, have the show notes for the show. You know, it's it's actually not my recipe, but it is Barefoot Contessa, if you're familiar with her. Yes. Famous chef. It's her, it's called Roasted Tomato Basil Soup. And I'll give everybody one little hint that do you can tell. do. And that is when you do your tomatoes, instead of doing them in the oven, because, you know, it's summer and it's hot, yes. um, do them on your grill. But put them on a on a jelly roll pan. Cover your jelly roll pan with with aluminum foil. And I know tomatoes and aluminum foil don't mix, but for a short period of time they'll be fine. Cut your tomatoes in half and put them on the grill. Set your grill so it cooks at about 350 degrees, okay. and come back in 45 minutes, and it doesn't mess up your oven, and it and it literally shrinks those tomatoes down, and oh, they're just they just get lovely, and you get that crustiness from the you know, the burning outside skins, and it's so good. And then you just take that whole thing of aluminum foil and sort of make it into a giant little um, sled, and you slide all those tomatoes right into your pan that you're going to make your soup in. And that's always, of course, the basis for the whole thing is you got to roast those tomatoes and and get a nice char on them. Um, That really adds the amazing flavor. And then other than that, it's real simple. It's a, you know, basil and... There's probably some onion in it. I'm not exactly sure. I I can't take credit for it. My wife is the one who's the great cook, and she found the recipe. I just grow the stuff that goes in it, and she takes care of all the making of it and the freezing of it and that kind of stuff, and then I get to enjoy it all winter. Oh, honestly, I love that. Yeah, it is great. It is fabulous. You grab a fresh tomato basil out of the freezer, and oh, it's so good in the middle of winter. Usually it's gone by about the... Halfway through December, though, because I can't. I just love it so much. I eat it almost every day for lunch. Oh, my gosh. Do you have a grilled cheese with it? Oh, yeah. you got to have a grilled cheese. Right? <laughs> oh, that's great. So um, you mentioned rosemary. Apparently, your, your straw bale garden is just too nice to it. But is, along with the rosemary, is there anything that a gardener should not plant in a straw bale garden? Yeah, don't plant sweet corn. You know, you, it's going to grow fine, but you're only going to get maybe three to four stalks of corn <laughs> at the most out of one bale, and that's not very productive. So, yeah. you know, don't grow sweet corn. Don't grow asparagus um, and rhubarb, things that are perennial root vegetables where you, you really need to have that plant in the ground for at least three or four years before you should really even start harvesting. Yeah. You know, you should let that asparagus feed its own roots with whatever it produces in terms of vegetation for at least three years before you start feeling it's, you know, it's early season production. 
Um, and the same thing with rhubarb. Let it establish for a couple years before you really start harvesting it. And if you do that in a straw bale, by the time it's ready to be harvesting, the bale is gone. It's completely decomposed, and it's become soil. So if you want to establish an asparagus patch, well, then condition a bale. And what I always tell people, if you're going to establish a patch, dig the bale into the ground just a little bit, maybe six or eight inches in the ground, so that when it completely decomposes, it's going to be level with the ground. It hmm. doesn't create a little hump that way. Um, and condition the bale, dig a little bit into the ground, put your asparagus in that conditioned bale, and then three years later, you can start harvesting, and it'll have established a nice little asparagus patch um, using that bale as a, you know, as sort of an, a way to get established without having to fire, fight roots, and it's got nice drainage, and it's got all these advantages. Um, that works good for the rhubarb as well. It works good if you want to establish a raspberry patch. Um, do not grow blueberries. Don't try to grow blueberries in a straw bale harbor because it will not work. Uh, blueberries need a very acidic environment, and they, they just will not grow in a straw bale. You need about between four and a half and five and a half um, on the pH scale, which is very acidic. Uh, to grow blueberries and it won't work in a straw bale. Yeah, that makes sense. Tell me a little bit about when the growing season is done. You've harvested everything. You're, you've are you you've had a successful year of straw bale gardening. What do you do with your bale when it's all over? Well, first thing I suggest is people evaluate, can I use this bale another year? And you'll, you know, you'll be able to tell very quickly whether you will be able to or not just by looking at it. Um, you know, if you didn't buy great, big, heavy, super-sized, compacted bales, you probably aren't going to use them the second year, and you'll be able to tell that. This, you know, strings have gotten really loose, and the bales sort of, you know, starting to tip over and, you know, sort of crumbled to the ground. At that point, you're going to pull your garden hose off, you're going to, or your soaker hose, you're going to take your, you know, any of your, um, plant markers and your strings and everything off of that bale and take your pitchfork and shovel it over into the corner of your garden. Don't put it in your traditional compost pile. And the reason I say that is because you don't want to add your muskmelon seeds and your, mm. you know, your other uh, seeds from your peelings, et cetera, uh, because that's going to contaminate this beautiful compost that you're going to get from using just your straw bales compost your straw bales in a separate compost pile because after you turn them a couple of times over the winter, by the following spring, you'll have a pile, the most beautiful compost you've ever had. It's very even textured. It's sterile. There's not a lot of weed seeds in it. It has really good drainage capacity, but yet it holds moisture really well. It has all the good characteristics that a really expensive potting mix from the garden center has. And I tell people, use this compost that you've now created on your leftover straw bale to fill up your annual pots that you put flowers out on your patio, that you fill up your window boxes. Um, if you mulch around your perennials, use this stuff instead of your compost from your traditional compost pile, which may or may not have heat cycled properly, and you might have muskmelons coming up all over around your perennials <laughs> if you compost with your or if you mulch with your traditional compost. Mm. Um, so use this as your sort of your primo compost, and you'll have a lot of it. You'll have about most of the time, a bale will shrink about 70%. So you'll have about 30% of the volume of that original bale left in compost that you can use. And that's a significant volume. You know, if you started with 10 bales, you now have three bales worth of volume of compost. That's a lot of compost for most people. Um, but it's good stuff. I mean, you'll, you'll love it. Uh, and if you don't love it, I tell people, never throw this stuff away. If you don't use it, find a neighbor 
who has a traditional garden and needs help in their soil and give it to them because you can till this into bad soils or poorly producing soils and it solves a lot of problems. If your soil has too much sand, you introduce the straw bale mulch and it helps solve that problem. It gives it more moisture holding capacity. If your soil has too much clay, introducing this organic material is going to open up the, the pores in that soil and allow for better drainage um, of that clay soil. So adding organic material solves lots of problems and now you have lots of organic material you can use or you can give away as a prized possession. Absolutely. Now, what are some of the biggest mistakes that a home gardener makes when they're starting off with edibles, in your opinion? Um, probably trying to tackle, you know, they, they try to do everything. You know, mm-hmm. they try to plant one of everything. And what I tell people is stick with what you like. You know, if you know you don't like eating zucchini, then don't plant five zucchinis because you're going to spend half your summer feeling bad if you don't use the zucchini and spending all kinds of effort trying to get rid of these zucchinis to give them to people. Um, so, you know, plant what you know you like and, you know, don't don't start out too big right away. You know, start small and, and grow into it um, like anything. You know, if you go too big, too fast, sometimes the excitement is, is outweighed by the work that you're going to end up having to do. And, um, you know, anytime you go bigger, it's going to add a little bit more time and, and commitment to the process. So stay small and stay with what you like. Yes. Usually that's what I suggest people do. Yes. Give me like three of the edibles that you like growing that you think are the most ornamental or the most beautiful to grow in a straw bale. Oh boy. That's a good question. Um, some of the cabbages are really, I think really beautiful, you know, and they can, I even seen lots of use of cabbage in, in traditional ornamental gardens, you know, where you can mix edibles and ornamentals together. Um, the purple cabbages, um, in particular come to mind. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I think all vegetable gardens are beautiful. I really do. I was, I was telling you earlier, but I'll, I'll repeat the story that I just got a, a video actually that was submitted on our Facebook page of this woman and she filmed her garden and as she's walking around it, she tells a story about how um, I started my garden this spring. Now she's videoing this beautiful lush straw bell garden that has, you know, seven foot tall tomatoes and it's just gorgeous. And she said, I put my straw bells out this spring and five days after I set my straw bells out and started conditioning, my daughter came to me and said she was going to get married and wanted to have a reception here at our house. And I debated should I take the straw bale garden down because I didn't know what it would look like by the time she got married. And she said the wedding was last weekend and this is what the garden looked like. And she, here she had decorated the whole garden with lights, twinkle lights, and it was just beautiful. And it actually became sort of a centerpiece. She says in her own words in the video became sort of a centerpiece of the reception because everybody had to walk by it to get to the backyard. So they all got to see it up close and at night, it had these twinkly lights on it, and the kids were playing. They set the bales up sort of in a maze. So huh. the kids were running in and out of the maze. And she said people were just blown away by how beautiful the garden looked. And it wasn't designed to be an ornamental garden. It's a producing vegetable garden. I mean, as she's walking around, she's harvesting these big peppers and other things that were that just looked beautiful in her garden. And so it, it wasn't meant to be ornamental, but it was still beautiful. I mean, it was a really nice setting in her in her front yard that people had to walk by to get to the backyard. So, you know, I think all gardens are, are beautiful. You know, you can do a little bit with a vegetable garden. Um, 
to dress it up. You know, I always tell people if you got a little room here and there on the sides of your bales and you haven't filled it up with everything, put a couple of impatience or a couple of petunias right in the sides of the bales and add a little pop of color here or there. And that sort of helps dress your bales up and makes them look a little bit nicer for the neighbors or even for yourself. You know, if you have to look at it, it might as well be pretty. Have you seen some non-edible, like, I mean, I know you mentioned these uh, these type of annuals. Are there anything else in there that, or any type of plant that you've seen someone put in a straw bale that you thought, hmm, interesting. Well, before I started doing it, um, a gentleman from down by Kansas City contacted me, and he said, um, I'm growing gladiolus in my straw bales, and I grow 100 gladiolus in each bale of straw. I called him and I said, you got to tell me about this, how you're doing it and, you know, how does it work? And, and then the following year I planted some and it works amazingly well, but essentially he bales his own straw. So he would take these great big giant 48 inch long bales of straw and condition the bale. And then he puts gladiolus bulbs side by side, tucked down into this bale. Well, now the bale's nice and warm. So the glads sprout very quickly and they grow roots quickly. They flower early, which everybody knows with gladiolus, the first one to flower is the guy who gets the sale, right? So he's a farmer's market seller. He wants as early of blooms as he can. And he literally cuts the flowers off and sells them by the stem, uh, you know, bunches bunches them up and sells them uh, at the farmer's market. And then he lets the vegetation finish inside the bale. So it replenishes the bulb by the end of the season. So at the end of the season, he comes along and instead of having to dig all these gladiolus bulbs up, he cuts the two strings, he kicks the bale over, oh and he gosh. harvests 300 gladiolus bulbs because each one becomes three typically inside of that bale. Um, so they either duplicate or triplicate. He harvests all his extra bulbs. Now he goes back to the farmer's market and he sells the gladiolus bulbs. Oh my gosh. To people for 30 cents a bulb. <laughs> <laughs> so he's making it on both ends. And you know, if you do the math, he's making a lot of the buck of stem for the flowers and 30 cents for every bulb. You know, he's, he's making some serious cash off of every bale of straw that he bales up. Um, and he says, you know, I, I, as fast as I can grow them, people buy them. So, oh, that's beautiful. you know that's an amazing story. There, there are lots of stories that people send me. Uh, I have a lady who wanted to get some bushes um, started. I can't even remember what kind privets or um, I can't remember what she was trying to plant. But she kept transplanting in this one spot. And she couldn't get them to grow. And she couldn't get them to grow. So she said, "How can I use a straw bale?" So I said, "You know, I've never done it, but I said there's no reason why it won't work." She conditioned the bale and dug half of the bale into the ground, just like we do with the raspberry patch, and planted her bushes, two of them, right into the straw bale. And the straw bale just melted right into the ground, and there she had a nice establishment of her two bushes. And they loved it. Yeah, and it was super easy, no weeds, you know, nice drainage, good good um, environment for a really fast root establishment and to get that plant up and, up and growing. Kind of helped you know, uh, increase it, the tolerance for that area for whatever exactly, reason. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And let the plant get a little bit of a head start before it had to deal with these uh, virgin soils that probably weren't the best soils in that environment, you know, before it had to start growing its roots into the, into the existing soil. Hmm. Would you share this um, up, upcoming trip that you have planned? Because I think, I think it's an amazing, um, I don't know, testament to this new method that you've started yeah. and how, how far the reach has gotten with straw yeah. gardening. Yeah, five or six years ago, um, you know, then people from all over the world order my my self-published booklet that I was selling for years and now the book that, I, that I've come out with from Cool Springs. Um, but a guy from Paris ordered, Paris, France, ordered my little self, 
self-published guide and started vegetable growing. And he had emailed me a couple times with questions about this or that. And I always remember him because I know he knew something about horticulture because of, you know, what he was asking, questions he was asking, but his English wasn't very good and my French isn't very good. So um, we kind of communicated by email a few times. And then he emailed me this early this spring. It was actually late winter. I think it was December or January, something like that. And it turns out he happens to be a landscape, quite renowned landscape architect from Paris. And he submitted a design to this, I don't know the name exactly, it's a fancy French name for a garden tour in the Loire Valley in France, which is where a lot of the big castles are down in this Loire Valley. He submitted a garden design based on using straw bales to build a garden and the garden was going to be an interpretation, a physical interpretation of a Monet painting, this famous Monet painting. And, you know, I kind of didn't really picture exactly what he was going to do when they started sending me pictures of it. And I'd actually posted it, links to it from our uh, Learn to Grow Strawbell Garden on Facebook. Um, so if anybody wants to see it, they can go there and, and link to it. But it's, uh, it's 370 bales. And it creates these contours and raised walkways, and it's all ornamentals and vegetables mixed together. And then as you walk into the garden, you look through this sort of wooden frame, and what you see looking through this wooden frame is literally an interpretation of exactly what that Monet painting looks like hmm. in colors and contours and, and textures, etc. So it's really fascinating, and the, the people who run the garden tour are just amazed by what he was able to accomplish you know, completely using straw bales as the substrate to grow all this. Normally you would have had to build, you know, retaining walls and embankments and move lots of soil and all that. He did it all essentially just out of bales of straw. Some of them he dug into the ground a little ways to build these contours and other things that really is a unique garden. And he he actually suggested, if there's any way you can get over here to see this, the garden tour runs for six months, so it runs through October, um, he said, we'd love to host you and, and maybe you can speak to our group, et cetera. So actually I'm leaving in, a, in about a week, uh, a week and a half to, to spend eight days in, in France and, and spend some time at that garden and some of the other gardens as well on the garden tour. So mm. it's funny how, you know, the world gets pretty small when you uh, start making friends in, in other parts of the world. And, and, you know, you just give people an idea and they take it and run with it. You know, I had nothing to do with what this guy did. I just gave him the original idea. He's growing some vegetables, and then he takes it to the next level and starts creating this, you know, architectural masterpiece out of out of a bunch of straw bales. That you know, it will be disassembled at the end of the garden tour, and next year they'll have some other designer that comes up with a different design. But huh. really, really unique. Pretty so, inspiring, though, too. I mean, I mean, what what do you think that's going to be like for you? And you're there, and you're standing there, going, "Holy cats! Here I well, am." I, it's pretty neat. Yeah, I, I think it'll be pretty pretty exceptional experience i you know i hope everything turned out great i mean we've been emailing back and forth all summer so he's very pleased with it and the people that organize the garden tour are just i mean they're just nuts crazy about it and they get they get about a half a million visitors that go through this garden so it's a it's a very busy summer schedule you know all these people that go through and see it so um i think we're going to sell lots of book we have a french publisher next spring that's going to do a French version of Strawbell Gardens. Uh, Rustica is the publisher in France. And um, I think they're going to sell lots of Strawbell Gardening books come next spring. So. Oh, I think they will. Yeah. Huh. Just think if Grandma point. Josephine could go with you on that trip, huh? Oh, yeah. She'd be quite She'd be quite surprised by all this 
attention for sure. I bet she would. Tell me, um, tell me some more about um, maybe the most memorable or striking piece of feedback on straw bale gardening you've ever heard. I, I just am so astounded by the level of feedback you get from people that have tried you know, this method. It's like they need to go back to the father and say, okay, here's what I did, but share yeah, with us some of the things that stand out for you. I, you know, I get good, I get lots of feedback and you know, sometimes you get somebody that emails out of frustration because they tried what they thought was straw bale gardening and it didn't work out for them and they'll ask for advice. And usually what I do is I bring them back to, well, tell me what you did and then I'll tell you what you did wrong. <laughs> and I break it down. But that's, that's very few and far between that I get those emails. Usually people that have followed the instructions and have done what I recommend, um, they email back. You know, and sometimes the nicest ones are just really short ones. You know, I got an email the other day that from this woman who said, I have rheumatoid arthritis and had to give up gardening, but now I have my garden back. Thank mm-hmm. you very much. You know, it's just something as straightforward as that. Um, over the years, I, you know, countless letters and emails. I remember one I got from a, a woman a couple, it was actually a few years ago. She had bought my self-published book. Her name was Gladys. And she wrote me this letter and she said, I'm, I wanted to write you this letter to let you know I'm 86 years old. And my husband was really the gardener, but he died 10 years ago. And since then, I haven't had a garden. Last summer or last spring, my daughter found your book on straw bale gardening, and she brought me two bales and your book. And I grew the best tomatoes I'd ever grown in my whole life in those straw bales. Mm. And I just want to tell you, I remember the last line. She said, I just want to tell you that you've made one old lady really happy. (laughs) I thought that was so cute. So sweet. I actually kept her letter, a copy of it. So, um, but I get lots of, you know, the younger people today, it's all on Facebook. They post, post comments and send you notes by messages and texts and emails and, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, a lot of communication and probably I should keep more of it, you know, just for files and stuff. But a lot of it I just tuck away. And people send me pictures of their gardens all the time, which I love. Um, and I do try to keep a file on, you know, all kinds of submissions over the years. And if you, if you've looked in my latest book, there are lots of pictures of people's gardens that they submitted. And we tried not to make them just, you know, fancy gardens or just people that were, you know, did everything prim and proper and followed the letter, you know, kind of realistic, real people's gardens and, you know, situations where they had, difficult soils to work with or they were in an environment where you know all they had was a parking lot to grow their garden so Hmm. here's what i did in my parking lot you know they didn't even have soil to grow their garden and uh, those are the kind of things i want people to see that anybody can do this you don't have to have great soil you don't have to be a genius horticulturist you you just have to follow these steps get your hands on a couple barrels of straw and for a few bucks you can have fresh tomatoes in three months you know it's really not rocket science you know, they don't have to go to a class and become a horticulturist in order to make this work for them. Uh, there'll be different levels of success. I mean, we have some people, as I, I mentioned to you, a woman in Tennessee that does 2,000 bales of straw. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a big straw bale garden. That's yeah. bigger than I would ever tackle. But she does it for farmer's market production. I mean, that's how she produces her crop field crops that she's selling at farmer's markets. So she needs mass production and she needs look less work in the field and more time to market her products. Mm. Um, if it didn't work, people like that wouldn't do that. You know, yeah. they wouldn't invest the time to, in the NAG and the money to buy the straw bales if they weren't somehow benefiting by the labor savings and the, you know, more productivity and earlier planting and all the things that we 
talked about. Hmm. Now, is there something, I'm just curious, is there something that seasoned straw bale gardeners tend to do that uh, the rookies maybe don't do, that you just have to have a few seasons of doing it before you um, you kind of hone your technique? Is there Are there some best practices that you've been able to kind of glean from people as they keep doing um, it? I, I would say probably one thing is they sense if there is any, you know, require any nutrient requirements, you know, sometimes if you're a rookie, you don't really, you look at the plant every day and you can't really tell what that plant is saying in terms of, I need phosphorus or I need potassium or I need nitrogen, or I'm not getting enough water or I'm getting too much water. Where a seasoned gardener that's done this for a while and even has been a traditional gardener for a while is usually going to be able to read those signs much quicker. Um, if there's any kind of a, you know, bug, insect problem, or something that happens to come into your garden, they're going to see it and be able to address it more quickly than a newbie mm-hmm. is. You know, sometimes when you're new, it takes you a little while to recognize, oh, you know, something's eating the leaves on my potatoes. I wonder what that could be. And then you go in and you Google it, and people tell you, well, it's a potato bug. You know, you need to do this and this and this. Where the experienced person is going to see that first little nibble, they're going to check over that whole plant. They're going to find the three or four potato bugs that are hanging out there, and they're going to grab them and get rid of them right then and there. Yeah. So it's just sort of a shortcut to the same result usually. You know, they're a little faster at picking up any problems and and usually they already know the answer or, you know, can find the answers more quickly than the rookie. You know, it takes them a while to diagnose what the issue is before they can start looking for a solution to the problem. Hmm. Let's get personal. How many bales do you have in your garden? Um, this year I have 22 bales in my backyard garden. But remember, it's just my wife and I, so we don't need tons of production. I'm involved with a couple of different community gardens, too. So um, I get plenty of gardening, believe me, and, and plenty of <laughs> produce. Uh you know, I stack the counter full in the in the kitchen every day with what I bring in from the garden, and you know, there's no way we can eat everything. So basically, everybody on my cul-de-sac, uh, we put a box out by the mailboxes, and it's the go-to box. Anybody who is looking for anything can take whatever's in that box. So we put any leftover zucchinis. A lot of those go out there, and and cucumbers, and tomatoes, and you know, peppers, anything that we can't consume. The two of us, we That's great. Now, um, I always ask, I'm very curious about gardeners and their the favorite tools that they have. I wish I had some magic tool I could talk to you about. You know, the handiest tool I carry with me every time I go to the garden is just a really good pruning shears. Okay. Um, every gardener needs one, and not one of these cheap ones that, you know, the anvil style. You need the scissor style, like a Swiss, they're called... Um, Charades, I think, or Schrade, Schrader, something like that. Okay. It's a really nice steel blade, Swiss made, uh, really red handled. I can't even remember the name of them, but really good pruners is really what one thing that you need. And to do straw bale gardening, you really don't, you know, you don't need rotor tillers and hoes and rakes and shovels. All you need is a hand trowel. So one good hand trowel. I like to take my hand trowel and I like to, I have a bench grinder. I like to sharpen the edge of my hand trowel, mainly so I can use it as a knife mm. or as a trowel. And, you know, you can accomplish almost any task you need to if you have a nice sharp knife and a, and a little hand trowel to be able to dig something. Um, you know, there's isn't many weeds, so I really don't do much weeding. If I do, it's usually you just pull it out. It's rooted into a nice mushy bale of straw, so it's not like you need some scientific 
you know, method to get it out. It's yes. pretty easy. Um, there's one tool that a guy brought me a couple of years ago that I, in my traditional garden, I use quite a bit. It's called a cobra. The cobra head. Cobra. Yeah, cobra head. Yeah. Pretty neat. Yeah, and they're nice because they're out of Wisconsin, so they're a neighbor. Oh, are they? They're local. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in terms of your personal development, how do you like to educate yourself? I read, I follow lots of my fellow authors and writers and bloggers on Facebook. Um, and I do read, I read your blog. I read other gardeners' blogs. Um, I think that's a great way to keep up. There's a couple of industry publications. I, of course, read Northern Gardener, which is an um, Minnesota State Horticulture Society magazine monthly. Um, I still get some publications from the University of Minnesota. The Horticulture Department puts out a newsletter in the, in the St. Paul campus. Ag College puts out a, a really nice publication every month. So um, I follow sort of the new new directions that the U is going in from that. And I, I read um, a lot on the Arboretum's website and and publications that they put out and kind of try to follow what they're working on as well. So I don't know. The information just kind of trickles in. I, I can't say that I'm a voracious reader of, you know, horticulture books these mm-hmm. days. You know, I do, if there's a good one that catches my eye and my interest, I'll certainly will, you know, read the parts that I don't, uh, of course, I assume I already know much of it. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't everybody in their own field, which yep. is why we never read each other's stuff. But you know, anytime you pick up a, a, a book by someone, there's going to be some sections of it that are, you know, this person's specialty, and you can usually pick those up really quick. So I'll I'll read through those chapters and those areas that I think they're probably really knowledgeable about, and then the rest of it a lot of times is just you know full material that is sort of repeating what everybody has said over the years. Do you have some sentimental favorites, some books that, I mean, whether they're trendy or whether they're not, but maybe like a couple that you're like, hey, these I have on my shelf and I love them. Ruth Stout. I've got several Ruth Stout books. I have a first edition of the No Work Gardening book. The cover's about to fall off. I think I've read it about three or four times. Um, It's a great book. You know, anybody who's never read it, it's, it's like it's written by your grandma. I mean, it is just... It's fun to read, and you can just hear her saying the things that she's writing, and and it, you know, it's an old classic, mm. um, but the advice in it is still really good. Um, and she's probably one of my sentimental, most sentimental favorites. I have, you know, other fellow writers that I that I like their work. I like um, Mel Bartholomew's got several books out that you know everybody knows about, um, and he seems to have a really good handle on how to say things. So. They're understandable and, you know, speaking to people that are not horticulture professionals, you know, don't have a bachelor's in horticulture, you know, you, you need to break it down a little bit sometimes and, and take your time explaining things so that you don't just use, like my grandma used to say, we just do it that way because that's just what works best. That's just why we do it. We just do it that way because that's the way we do it. <laughs> and you can't tell that to other adults, you know, you have to explain to them why basically why you do it this way and why it tends to work best this way. Um, and that part of that, I think I learned just from, from reading, you know, other good writers that, that tend to do a good job with that. Um, I like Amy Stewart. She's got a unique voice. I like Nikki Jabour. Uh, she's got a couple of, uh, one really good book out, another one coming out next spring. Um, I like stuff she writes. Uh, there's a whole number of people, but those are just a few. Hmm, that's a good sampling for folks. 
Now, uh, the question I'd like to end my show on is um, always aimed at trying to inspire my kids to get into gardening because I do love gardening with them and I hope it's something that they do when they become adults. What are your tips for getting kids excited about gardening? Is it just spending time out there like you did with Grandma Josephine or is or do you have some other ideas that you think are really good? Yeah, you know, anytime a kid can have success, that's the main thing is, and, and they don't have the patience of Job to wait, you know, four months for something to finally mature. Get them started planting things like radish. That's where my grandma's first assignment for me when I wanted to have my own garden was, okay, well, you get this little two-by-two two area, and you're going to plant radish. And then you're going to come back and make sure there's no weeds, and, and you're going to check on it every day and, you know, see how it's doing. And then 45 days later, which isn't too long to wait, you know, 40, 45 days later, you're going to pull this thing out of the ground and wash it off under the hydrant, and you're going to eat it. And it went from this little seed to being this crazy tasting thing that, you know, at that age, you, you never tasted a radish before. So it leaves a memory, sometimes a good memory, sometimes a bad memory, but it leaves a permanent memory um, of that experience. So, you know, giving them something to, to grow on their own, that, you know, give them their own bale or their own half a bale or something that, uh, that you know they can be successful with and a little bit of guidance and, you know, let them stick something in there. And usually that's what inspires success is, or inspires them to continue is just having success. And it's pretty hard to not be successful if you, you know, if you just follow uh, a few simple steps. It's pretty simple. Well, there you have it. Thank you for being on the show today. It's been so fun. Thank you very uh, much, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. And I admire your work you're doing as well with your blog. And it's, it's fun to read. I really enjoy it when I get your emails. You're the, you're one of several that I read on a regular basis. Well, thank you. I appreciate what you're doing as well. Well, I'm just starting out. So I do love it. And I have to say too, I want to make sure that people know that you're going to be giving away a couple of books to listeners of the show. So what we'll do is is we will have people or ask folks who are listening now to leave a comment in the comment section of the show notes for this show. And that will be in at sixfootmama.com in the main menu. Go to the Still Growing Podcast. This episode will be on top. And then you can just click there, read through the show notes, and leave a comment at the bottom. And then Joel will go through and pick a couple of lucky winners to win a copy of his book his New York Times bestselling book called Straw Bale Gardens. And Joel, while we're at it, why don't you tell people how they can get to your website if they would like to purchase a copy of your book in case they don't win it uh, from the show today, if they'd like to buy it for a relative or a gardener, tell them how they can get to your website. And then also, if you wouldn't mind, share how they can get to that Facebook page that you have for Straw Bale Gardens. The website is strawbellgardens.com, so simple as that, strawbellgardens.com, or uh, they can find us on Facebook. We're at Learn to Grow a Straw Bale Garden, which I, I didn't know that was going to be part of the URL when I set it up, or I wouldn't have made it that long, but that's what it is. Um, you can link to that from our website uh, to get to the Facebook as well, or you can just go to Facebook and search for Learn to Grow a Straw Bale Garden, and you'll see there's a couple of other Travel Garden uh, Facebook pages, which you can certainly check those out as well. Uh, but we'd love it if you'd come and like our page um, on Facebook, kind of keep up with the different crazy posts that we put up there as well. So and and send us pictures via via Facebook, whatever. And 
Um, and we'll feature a lot of times when people send us pictures, you end up being featured on the page for all 30,000 people to go and check out. So it's a way you can become a straw bale gardening celebrity very quickly on the Facebook page. Ooh, I love that idea. Kind of a straw bale garden selfie. Exactly. I exactly. love it. Well, thanks again, Joel, for being on the show. This was great. Thank you very uh, much, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for our show today. I want to again thank Joel Karsten for being my guest. It was a fabulous three-part series on straw bale gardening. If you've missed the first two episodes, you're going to want to go back and catch them because he thoroughly explains the straw bale garden pioneering technique that he's developed, that he spent 20 years developing. And for those of you who are interested in trying this this summer, this season, it's going to be an invaluable resource for you. And just a quick heads up for listeners, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be releasing multiple shows each week. Upcoming, we have Linnea Geiger of Garden Girl and Stephen Dovelow of Earthworm Technologies, as well as Julia Coffey of Seeds Trust, and once again, Sarah Griffin Bubakar of Grow Organic, Peaceful Valley Farm and Garden Supply. And all four of those shows, all four episodes will be released over the next two weeks. I want to thank Thank you for listening to the show today. Don't forget, I appreciate any of you that can spare the time to go to iTunes and leave a review for the show so that others can find this podcast. And if you do that, I will be happy to give you a shout out on the show next week. Of course, I'll have all the information from the show today at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you can find this episode in the top menu under Still Growing Podcast. You can always find me at sixfootmama.com or on facebook.com backslash stillgrowing with sixfootmama. You can also email me directly at jennifer at sixfootmama.com. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is an hour-long weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. So today we're going to wrap up with some poetry and quote reading and um, actually a little song, a little sing-along. Um, and we'll have Emma, Will, and John joining us. And we'll start out with Emma, and she is going to read a poem, a familiar poem probably for most of you. A Hillside Thaw by Robert Frost. To think to know the country and now know the hillside on the day the sun lets go. Ten million silver lizards out of snow. As often as I've seen it done before, I can't pretend to tell the way it's done. It looks as if some magic of the sun lifted the rug that bred them on the floor, and the light breaking on them made them run. But if I thought to stop the wet stampede and caught one silver lizard by the tail and put my foot on one without avail and threw myself wet-elbowed and wet-kneed in front of twenty others wriggling speed and the confusion of them all a glitter and birds that joined in the excited fun by doubling and redoubling song and twitter I have no doubt I'd end by holding none. It takes the moon for this. The sun's a wizard, by all I tell, but so is the moon a witch. 
From the high west, she makes a gentle cast, and suddenly, without a jerk or twitch, she has her spiel on every single lizard. I fancied when I looked at six o'clock, the swarm still ran in scuttled just as fast. The moon was waiting for her chill effect. I looked at nine. The swarm was turned to rock in every lifelike posture of the swarm. A transfix on mountain slopes almost erect. Across each other and side by side they lay. The spell that so could hold them as they were was wrought through trees without a breath of storm to make a leaf if there had been one stir. One lizard at the end of every ray. The thought of my attempting such a strike. I'm trying to think of the most saddest thing. <laughs> Why does the poem seem sad to you? I don't know. It's not sad at all. I just think it's weird. You think the poem is weird? <laughs> That's fine. What do you think the poem is about? Lizards. <laughs> Jumping from six o'clock to nine o'clock at night. The thought of my attempting such a stray. <laughs> so Emma, you, you read that. Who who found this poem for you to read? Grandma. Grandma did. Because grandma loves this poem, doesn't she? Yes. Ten million silver lizards out of the snow. <laughs> at first I'm just like, what? So we did a little research on this poem and we found a resource online called The Critical Companion to Robert Frost, a literary reference to his life and work by Deirdre Fagan. And um, on page, let's see, 152, um, it talks about the poem Hillside Thaw. And... Robert Frost actually referred to this poem as the Silver Lizard Poem. It says that he and his friend Raymond Holden once observed on Robert Frost's farm in New Hampshire. His friend said, We stood for a while in the moonlight watching the glitter of the frozen rivulets, which in the warm sun of the afternoon before had made runnels of thaw water running down the sloping floor of the sugar orchard. So it's just what I thought. The When you watch snow melt, the running water that comes out of the big banks of snow like what we have outside looked like little silver lizards to Robert Frost. And that's what he's writing about is what's happening outside right now is... Everything's starting to thaw. Oh, okay. Does that make more sense now? He says, 10 million silver lizards out of the snow. He's talking about the trails of water that trickle down from thawing snow on a hilltop. Here, as the water slithered down the hillside, it looked as if silver lizards are coming out from under a rug. The narrator cannot imagine how it's done, except by some magic of the sun. Right? <laughs> The closing stanza describes the sun as a wizard and the moon as a witch. The sun's wizardry has turned the melting snow into lizards before the speaker's eyes, and the moon's witchcraft 
manages to turn them to rock when the sun sets and the temperature drops below freezing again. This poem was first published in 1921, so that's a long time ago, isn't it? All right, Emma. Thanks for reading the poem. All right, so Will is going to read some quotes about winter changing into spring. In the depth of winter, I finally learned that within me there lay an invincible summer by Albert Camus. The next one is by Lewis Carroll, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. I wonder if the snow loves the trees and fields, that it kisses them so gently, and then it covers them up snug, you know, with a white quilt. And perhaps it says, go to sleep, darlings, till the summer comes again. The next one, uh, well, I don't know who the author is right now. But Yoko Ono. Yoko Ono. Spring passes and one remembers one's innocence. Summer passes and one remembers one's exuberance. 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 Autumn passes and one remembers one's reverence. Winter passes and one remembers one's perseverance. Next one is by Julian Barnes. When you're young, you prefer the vulgar months, the fullness of the seasons. As you grow older, you learn to like the in-between times. Perhaps it's a way of admitting that things can't ever bear the same certainty again. Spring, if it lingers more than a week beyond its span, starts to hunger for summer to end the days of perpetual promise. Summer, in its turn, soon begins to sweat, for something to quench its heat, and the mellowest of autumns will tire of gentility at last and ache for a quick, sharp frost to kill its fruitfulness. Even winter, the hardest season, the most implacable, dreams as February creeps on of the flame that will presently melt it away. Everything tires with time and starts to seek opposition to save it from itself. Clive Barker, The Hellbound Heart. And that was me. So you read these five quotes. Yeah. All right. And you shoveled the driveway for me. Yeah, I scraped because I wanted to play basketball, but it's too wet outside. All right. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Me gusta. Well, driving the kids around to school has gotten a little more interesting lately because the kids are watching Gilligan's Island, and they love it. It took a few minutes for them to get used to the first couple of shows because they're in black and white, and they're waiting anxiously for the first shows to appear in color. And we just started season two, and I don't think it's in color yet, so um, the kids are eager for it to... um, be in color. And I remember as a kid watching Gilligan's Island and when the reruns were black and white, I was always wishing for them to be in color too. So I can relate. I remember that feeling that. Uh, But one of the things that has really been kind of sweet for me is that I'll be driving down the road on the way to school or somewhere and I'm usually listening to a podcast and the kids are in the back seat watching Gilligan's Island, and now they've watched it enough where they're usually singing along to the uh, theme song, and 
the other morning, I knew John was going to do this because we were. We, I just popped in a new disc, so I quick hit uh, my audio recorder on my phone, and I taped Johnny singing along to the theme song, and I'm getting this little serenade from him now about every other day because it takes him that long to get through an episode, but it's the sweetest little thing, and I, I just wanted to share it with you. Here it is. And that is my morning. That's how I start out most of my mornings with little John uh, singing the Gilligan's Island theme song and watching a show on our way to school. Um, the other day we were watching the episode where, um, what is it, Wrong Way, Runway or Runway, Wrong Way. I can't remember the guy's name, but it's that episode. And there's a scene in there where Lovey is, uh, Mrs. Howell is um, having him dig dig something. I think they were making him build roads. They were trying to make the island seem unattractive to him so that he would get in his plane and tell people where they were where they were at so they could be rescued. And of course, he wasn't having any of it. He wanted to um, get away from society and enjoy life on this tropical island. So they were trying to make him uncomfortable and they were having him um, make roads and and dig in the dirt, that kind of a thing. And um, Mrs. Howell had this quote that I thought was really cute. Um, Great little quote for gardeners. And she said, let me pull it up here quick, because I wrote it down. I posted it on um, on my Twitter account. Okay, here it is. She said, you'll adore it, getting down to Mother Earth. There's nothing like the feeling of dirt against your opera gloves. And that sounds exactly like Lovey Howell and how I remember her. So actually, I find the Howells pretty funny uh, watching those old shows or listening to those old shows now because I'm not watching them. I'm actually just driving around and I hear them playing in the back seat when I'm not listening to a podcast. And um, I have to say, I find the Howells much more entertaining now that I'm an adult than I ever did as a kid. I was always waiting for the scenes with them to be done um, so I could watch more Gilligan or Ginger or something like that. And I didn't find the Howells that amusing. But now as an adult, I have to say Thurston is hilarious and Lovey is as well. So anyway, thanks everyone for listening. I hope you have a great week. I hope you get a chance to get outside. It is warming up out there and we're going to be in the garden again before you know it. 